Dreams are odd things, aren't they? We're in this semi-conscious state where our mind does things that make total sense in the moment and afterwards leave us completely baffled. Sometimes they're exhausting. One comedian says, I hate dreams. They're a lot of work. It's like, there I am, comfortable in my bed. And the next thing I know, I have to build a go-kart with my ex-landlord. And we hear this and we laugh. But in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream was no laughing matter. The God of Israel had something to say to Nebuchadnezzar, which had him spooked pretty badly. But it ends up showing us a beautiful picture of the then-coming Messiah, who did in fact come and live among humans. King Nebuchadnezzar had recently taken the throne. He's a fairly new king at the time of the story. And if you've ever started a new job, particularly one where you're in charge of, well, anything, you know how much pressure there can be at the beginning. The self-doubt and the paradoxical overconfidence that comes with all of that, as you can imagine, he's under a lot of stress. So he's having these unsettling dreams, or actually the same reoccurring dream. And he, being Babylonian, wants to know what it means. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, let's recap the rest of the players. There's Daniel, who you already know. But watch in this story for how he's a preview, a foreshadowing of what is to come in Jesus. And his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who you may know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny if you're a VeggieTales fan. And they're being indoctrinated in the Babylonian culture. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, they're learning their language, studying their dream tablets, and being trained in their government. But they're also trying to remain faithful to the God of Israel. And then there are the king's advisors, which are made up of a myriad of wise men who specialize in astrology, astronomy, sorcery, magic, and dream interpretation. There's also this Babylonian man named Arioch, whose job it was to methodically dismantle a conquered people. He's essentially the chief executioner for anyone who didn't fall in line. Now, to truly understand the king's predicament, we have to understand the cultural context within which he's operating, specifically Babylonian dream culture. To the Babylonians, dreams were considered messages from the gods. They even compiled whole dream books full of these if-then examples of dreams and their meaning. For example, if during a dream the dreamer looked to the right or to the east, it was considered lucky, and this person would be victorious. If the dreamer sees a pea, the vegetable, it was a good omen. And if the dreamer whispers in his dream, shame would be brought upon him or her. And this is the very literature that Daniel and his friends are studying. Now there's a whole process for this dream interpretation as well. First, the wise men were given the dream, and with all the details and all the nuances, then they would consult the books to find the symbols and the themes, just like those I mentioned. It was important to have all of those details as well. And next, they'd declare a meaning, give consequences, and set the timing of the dream based on those symbols. And finally, they would compose an appropriate response for the dreamer concerning the dream. They could tell them what rituals to perform to offer protection or what sacrifices ought to be made to the gods who gave the dream. And this is where things go off script just a bit. King Nebuchadnezzar isn't playing by the established rules. 
he refuses to give the wise men an account of his dream and insists that they tell him what it meant. Why? Well, perhaps he forgot his dream, which is a bad sign on its own and something he would never admit to. Or he thinks his wise men are just flatterers and will tell him whatever he wants to hear. Or he might be worried that it's so ominous that they might just conspire against him to have him deposed. Regardless, he doesn't trust them, and he decides he needs assurance that this dream really was from a god, and that the interpretation is trustworthy. There's literally no precedent for what Nebuchadnezzar does here. That's not how dream divination worked. That's why the wise men are so confused and repeatedly ask him to just tell them the dream. But he refuses, and instead he issues a decree that if they cannot, then he will kill all of the wise men, including those, like Daniel, who weren't even privy to this meeting. It leads to a notable response from the wise men in verse 11. They say, No one could reveal this but the gods, and they do not dwell among men. This statement speaks volumes about the Babylonian understanding of their gods. The gods who interact with humans are not powerful enough to answer this question, and those that are do not dwell among men. But Yahweh, the God of the conquered Israel, makes them eat their words, because this God is different. He does dwell with men, men like Daniel. And in fact, one day in the distant future, the very God who was powerful enough to answer Neb's question and both to tell him the dream and to interpret it is the very same God who would put on flesh to live like us. John says in his opening chapter, which we read this morning, that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. The word is a reference to the tent of worship in the Old Testament. It's literally pitching a tent a temporary, portable living place that put him right in the middle of humanity. It isn't until Daniel and company are being rounded up by Arioch that he even finds out about this decree. And I love how Daniel goes to Arioch, who's essentially an executioner, and is somehow able to convince him to put a pause on the executions and to get an audience with the king. Like, that's the opposite of what Arioch is supposed to do. But Daniel has favor. He has a God who dwells with him. It's an echo of Jesus, who Luke says grew in favor with God and men. Daniel and his friends pray fervently, urgently, all night, pleading for an answer. Does it remind anyone else of Jesus praying in the garden? The night before he was to be killed, he prayed urgently and fervently, and he asked his friends to do the same another echo. Daniel and his friends prayed like their lives depended on it. Because, well, they do. But so do the lives of others. Daniel isn't just trying to save his own neck, but he also has compassion on the other wise men. These pagans who do not believe his God, who do not deserve to be saved, he's sticking his neck out for them as well. He stays Arioch's hand and prevents an annihilation of an entire profession. Now, he could have slipped away and asked God on the down low while executions were happening all around him, and only emerged when he had an answer. But he doesn't, because the Messiah wouldn't, 
The Messiah would sacrifice himself for an undeserving people. And not only would he risk his life, but he would lose it too. Now, many of us in our Western culture would assume that the king's dream is the climax of the story. It's got to be the point, right? Because that's where all the action is. But we have to remember that this is a Hebrew story. The climax is at the very center of the story. All the rest is falling action on the other side of the story arc. In fact, all the rest is a retelling of the first part of the story. The climax is right here, beginning in verse 19. And it's when God reveals the dream to Daniel and comes through at clutch time. Why? Because God shows up and he communes with Daniel. It's another foreshadowing of Jesus. Daniel is human and yet has this special divine connection. Now, Jesus obviously differs from Daniel in that while he is human, he is also fully God. But for just a moment, Daniel has the privilege of reflecting a piece of God for the listener of the story, both those who experienced it firsthand, like Nebuchadnezzar, and all of those who have read it throughout history. Here, God proves the advisors wrong. This God does dwell with men, with Daniel and his friends. He intervenes and he reveals the mystery. And the fitting response from Daniel is to praise God. Listen again to his response. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes the times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells in him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. Any guesses to the point of this dream? I mean, in case any of us were thinking it was about something else, Daniel's song is pretty clear about the message God is trying to convey to Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel goes to Arioch and he tells him, take me to the king and I'll interpret the dream for him. Daniel has compassion on this undeserving king's distress. Daniel had every reason to hate Nebuchadnezzar and to be unhelpful to him. Nebuchadnezzar had taken over his whole world uprooted him from his home, and even stripped him of his identity. And yet, he has compassion, just as Jesus, the greater Daniel, would later have compassion on an undeserving humanity. Once Daniel is with the king, he reiterates this point that no one can do what the king is asked, not even him. It's repeated again and again in this chapter to make it clear that only God, the God of heaven, can accomplish this impossible task. In verse 30, he explains why God cares or bothers to answer the king's request. Because the dream was indeed a message from God, the one true God, the God of Israel. Okay, okay, let's get to the dream already, right? What was it? The dream was of a statue, a head of gold, a belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And then a stone, not cut by human hands, smashes into the feet of this statue, breaking it to pieces to be blown away by the wind. But the rock became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. 
It kind of sounds like one of my dreams. Inexplicable, impossible things happen that seem perfectly normal in the dream, but completely bizarre when you wake up. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar was worried. Not only does God give Daniel a vision of the dream itself, but he actually shares with him what it means. And here, Daniel tells Neb, there are four metals in the statue and they represent four kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the head of gold. And Daniel borrows language from Genesis 1 to explain the power and the dominion that he as king has over all of humankind, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even in exile, Daniel understands the power that God has placed in Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He acknowledges this young king's reign and he boosts his confidence just a bit. I mean, how flattering to think that he is the head of gold and that the kingdoms that come after him will be inferior. And then Daniel tells him that the rock that simply appeared in his dream, not human made, will crush it all, destroy it all, and establish an everlasting kingdom of heaven. He reminds Nebuchadnezzar that no matter how great, how feared, how powerful he is, like we remember on Ash Wednesday, he is, and we are, but dust. Now I want to pause for just a moment to point out that this is not primarily about which kingdom is which. Scholars have argued about that for ages. Whether the chest of silver were the Persians or the iron and clay were the Romans, it makes little difference to what God was trying to say to Nebuchadnezzar that day. He puts Nebuchadnezzar, this freshly minted king, in his place. He's going to do great and mighty things, yes, and yet... He will be blown away with the rest when God establishes his earthly kingdom and comes to dwell with his people forever. And here we conclude the story. The king falls at Daniel's feet and praises him. He even makes offerings to him. The text doesn't say that Daniel corrects this, but it already said in verse 30 that he doesn't have any greater wisdom than anyone else and gives credit to God rather than himself. But here it's silent Because it's fitting that this Christ type would be venerated. That's not to say that Daniel deserved the praise, but rather the role of intercessor that he played is to be respected. And then Nebuchadnezzar makes this declaration. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. This God is different. He's not like the Babylonian gods who do not dwell with men. This God, the God of Israel, engages with his people. He answers their prayers. He reveals his mysteries. And he dwells among them. This all-powerful, all-wise God isn't some distant God who lacks understanding and prescribes from afar. But rather, he has experiential knowledge of our human frame. He would send Jesus to pitch a tent and couch surf, if you will, to truly immerse himself with his people and get the full human experience. Why? So that in Jesus, every part of humanity could be redeemed. If in Adam, humanity was a bent, twisted, crumpled, and wrinkled spandex morph suit, Jesus had to put his feet all the way to the bottom of the toes and his hands all the way to the end of the fingertips to stretch and reshape it back 
to what it was meant to be. And he didn't just put on a human suit. He actually became human. As the early church theologian Athanasius said, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. Jesus' death and resurrection would be lacking had he not lived among us and took on every part of humanity, birth to death. But even that dwelling was temporary, right? Just a tent? Jesus has returned to the right hand of God the Father, as we say each week in the Apostles' Creed. However, he left the Holy Spirit to continue to dwell with us. And this time, it's more than pitching a tent on our front lawn like the children's sermon said. He's moving in with us. He's taking up our guest room. He's eating dinner with us, watching television with us, instructing our minds, turning our hearts to Jesus, correcting our missteps, speaking our unutterable prayers, calming our anxieties, and holding our hands when we grieve. And we have hope that Jesus will one day return again to establish a permanent home. If the Holy Spirit is Him moving in with us, then that is when we move in with Him. So what do we do with this story? What then is our fitting response? It is to make the same declaration as Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. We fall on our faces and we worship God alone because He is all-powerful, all-wise. He changes the times and the seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He reveals mysteries. And he desires to commune with us, so much so that he put on humanity to be with us, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And we can invite him into our everyday, normal, mundane lives and participate with him as he redeems every part of them. We can look forward to the day when the mountain in Nebuchadnezzar's dream fills the whole earth. Because this God is different. He dwells among us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.